It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, I have a conversation with Steve Krakauer. You can follow him on Twitter at Steve Krak. That's K-R-A-K. He is the executive producer of the Megyn Kelly Show, their podcast. He's also the author of the Fourth Watch Media Newsletter, which you can uh, find a link to at his Twitter. Twitter bio and and most recently and the reason for our conversation today he's the author of a new book uncovered how the media got cozy with power abandoned its principles and lost the people the book is a collection of a number of different things but uh, above all it contains a number of interesting interviews that he conducted over uh, several months with major media figures at the center of a lot of the different conversations that are happening in American politics and media today it's an interesting snapshot of what's going on in in media and comes at a time and in a moment, obviously, when uh, distrust in media could not be higher. It's at historically high levels. Steve has uh, a lot of different insight to offer about why this is. Conversation with Steve Krakauer coming up next. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Steve Krakauer, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Yeah, Ben, great to uh, great to talk to you again. So we've had opportunity to talk over the course of the past several years, and I feel like this period of time has been one of the worst for American political media, media in general, and of course Americans' distrust for the media in so many different ways. Why is that? <laughs> Yeah, I, it, I agree with you. I, I think that I was I was at CNN as late as uh, August of 2013. So less than 10 years ago, I was at CNN. And I think that there were valid criticisms of CNN when I was there. Um, but very clearly, by 2015, 2016, certainly into 2017 through the Trump administration, something fundamentally had gotten significantly worse. And we see this in poll after poll. I mean, there's the Gallup poll recently, but every poll that we see, the trust in the media of the American public is at all-time lows, including, I should note, of independence, which I think has just completely fallen off a cliff in the last maybe four or five years. Um, so something significant has happened. And it, and it really, uh, you know, I, I write the Fourth Watch newsletter. I written columns. Those are really kind of quick turn things. I wanted to kind of step back and see and put in the the, the the full work of putting it into a book of really trying to figure out, and I laid out five specific problems with with in-depth case studies ex- exhibiting each of these problems from a geographic bias to a coziness with power to loosely Twitter, which I think has just completely made everything worse for a variety of reasons. How do we get to this moment in time? And also, I do really think that we are at kind of this inflection point 
right now also, where the independent upstarts have some are accruing some power, but there's going to be winners and losers there. That hasn't shaken out. The corporate press is at this very perilous position right now. They're losing their power. But at the same time, we don't know exactly how that's all going to shake out, not just in the media, but in the entertainment space. We're at like this moment in time. And in, to be able to kind of step back, assess the damage, and then see about potentially some solutions, how we can get back to uh, at least some level of, of decent press, because I think we do need it. That was really what I set out to do. You know, what's funny is I, I'm asked sometimes about the podcast that I consume because I make references to them. And what I say to people is, oh, I don't listen to political podcasts. I mostly listen to, you know, these different you know, sort of contrarian or centrist or or sports podcasts or things like that. And then I realized that like half the podcasts that I listen to are essentially media criticism podcasts. Like Ethan Strauss, it's it's yeah. a media criticism podcast. Like if you get right down to it, you know, uh, blocked and reported it, it, the fifth column, Megan Kelly it's these are media criticism criticism podcasts that are going down kind of the list of the people who are on your cable news, you know, in your heads, uh, writing these columns and getting it wrong so consistently. It seems to me that this is a, a boom time for media criticism. Yeah, and, yet the and media and also, itself doesn't yeah. ever seem to change. Right. No, it, it doesn't. Although the, the people that you named there, right, Blocked and Reported, Ethan Strauss, Fifth Column now, are all Substack based, uh, which is interesting. Megyn Kelly, um, you know, uh, independent also, but was formerly of, of the corporate press, now is not. And all of these are, are places where, yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of media criticism in all those podcasts, and they're all great. At the same time, we have what is traditionally media criticism or traditionally media coverage, uh, media reporting in more of the, the, the more traditional places, the Washington Post and the New York Times and the CNNs of the world, have essentially moved from strict media criticism to really media criticism that's, that's actually just pol politics masked in this veneer of media criticism. So as they've gotten less... I, let's just say trustworthy on the media side, we get these independent upstarts that are much more interested in trying to assess things from a from a fair, objective perspective. And so so I think that that we again, the, we only because of this moment, only because of the loss of power of the corporate media um, by people like Megyn Kelly going on the outside and finding success by these these Substack brands being being able to accrue an audience and actually gain real power and uh, and find you know, influence and find an, an audience because they're interesting and they're different. Uh, you know, that if, if there's any complaint of the where the mainstream press has gone over the, the last, let's say, five to seven years is how predictable everything has gotten, how boring mm -hmm. and bland. And you could predict what's going to be said in, in, you know, half or if not more of what you watch on cable news these days. That's a huge problem. And it, it opens this lane. And, and I, if, if again, I am generally optimistic. I do think that they're starting to notice. I think that they're starting to, to feel that there's this panic. And now how do we get out of it? And maybe that is by opening a little bit into other areas that are that they're, they're not being served right now. I, you know, I you're going to talk to my colleague, Howard Kurtz. Uh, and obviously, I love Media Buzz, but I always joke with Howard. You realize you could do this show not just every day of the week, but probably twice a day, every, every yeah. day of the week, uh, just the, the amount of material, the amount of terrible media coverage of warped media coverage of inaccurate media coverage, and also of insulting media coverage is so great 
that people have just, you know, they've turned away from it. They've turned to all these alternate sources. And at the same time, these old guard media entities are basically criticizing these new sources as being dangerous in different respects. So we have the criticism of the siloization of Substack. We have the criticism of, you know, podcasts that has, has really emerged in the past couple of years that, you know, oh, we can't monitor these the same way that we could, right. you know, print media and the like. Tell me a little bit about the media consumption pattern of the American people. How is yeah. that actually changing over the over time in terms of the way that they're engaging with things as the viewership has declined for cable news and the, and the type of traditional news outlets uh, that we've seen, you know, so dominant in the past? Absolutely. I think that's that's a really important point. You know, I, one of the case studies I write about in the book is ESPN. And, you know, yes. I don't traditionally cover the sports media myself, but I think it's a good case study because it represents something. ESPN had a business model that, that you know, they're going to maybe have some good years and a little bit less good years, but it's it's steady. It, they're going to be just printing money forever. That was how it was for a very long time. And then suddenly, a little bit at a time, and then very rapidly, ESPN could be amazing. CNN could be amazing still. And every single day they will lose traditional viewers because of the way people consume content is just completely changing. The amount of options for how you can consume content for the content you can consume is growing every single day. You mentioned some of these like podcasts or the, the way that YouTube shows have taken off or Substack. I mean, all of these outlets are just social media in general. All of these are are really starting to impede on the cultural cachet of these once great and still great, but, but lose slipping organizations. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that what you mentioned there about the, the, the clamping down on quote unquote misinformation or disinformation is a response to this. Uh, I, I describe it in the book as anti-speech activism. You know, we had journalists who, in theory, this is the one occupation where freedom of, spree, of speech and a, a free-flowing exchange of ideas, that should be paramount. That's, that's really, you know, I can, I can get why maybe activists or maybe people that are, that are not in the media space might not think this way. But journalists, that, that's, that's where, where the bread and butter is. Not, not anymore. No, whether it's through COVID or through other storylines that, that I lay out in the book, all of these are examples of Instead of just letting you, the average American, consume a, a wide variety of opinion, make up your own mind, uh, be uh, privy to different information, we need to make sure that you don't even see it because we don't trust you enough to do – and that, that may even – we don't even necessarily trust you with the truth in some cases. We have to stop it before it can get out there. And that's something that's actually gotten worse since Donald Trump left office. And I think it's actually far more, you know, really concerning because that's not political. This is not a political situation. This is a form like a major distrust in the American public. And of course, the public feels that. And then in response, distrust the people who are clamping down on them getting more information. Talk to me a little bit about the profit factors here. Obviously, when it comes to Substack, and things like that, you are, uh, or Patreon, let's say, for, for people who use that for their podcast support, uh, you are giving money to an individual or to a group of people whose content you like and you want to support. Oftentimes, this runs the equivalent of what you used to pay for, let's say, a full magazine subscription, you know, 50 right. bucks, 60 bucks a year, something like that, uh, just because, you know, whether you like the fifth column or you like, you know, uh, blocked and reported, or you liked, uh, you know, house of Strauss, or you like, you know, Shane Gillis and his, and his pothead uh, friend, Matt, uh, you know, you are giving them this money 
you know, in exchange for consuming extra content or something along those lines. That's not something that to me seems like a model that can really expand all that easily because people just run out of money. They, they only are going to spend so much money for so much media. And they're in the same way that like streaming services are all clambering over each other to try to get access to you. And, and you're trying to choose between, okay, how much money am I spending every month right. for these different streaming services for shows that I'm not going to watch or, you know, movies I'm not going to consume. It, it becomes something that's really difficult to navigate. How does that play out in the future? Like what is the, is the path forward for this type of new reality where we're essentially paying for columnists or the equivalent of them, you know, uh, that uh, in a way that we used to pay for entire newspapers or magazines. Yeah. Individual people, individual brands. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to document this and uncover it is because I do think that we are in the, in this particular moment, it's going to change because you're right. I, I you know, there's a, a bundling, if you will, of like Disney plus and then ESPN and then Hulu. Well, now all of a sudden we're starting to talk like the olden days of, of, Oh, it's like a cable subscription. You know, this is, yeah. this is where things are going. And so, so I, I think that, yeah, there, there's gotta be a tipping point at some point also, right? There's only so much to go around and, uh, and you know, it's not like you go and you subscribe to Substack. You're, you're buying an individual person's content, uh, you know, whatever that may be. And so I think that there's a space for the premium side of the media, which are these, these subscriptions. And then there is a space for loosely institutional press for larger media outlets to try to fold in some of these voices and make them more accessible and you know in some cases free you know you, it's a different business model where you can you can invite them into it i, I was um you know i interviewed brian stelter uh about the book and uh one of the things that he said is that cnn plus had was trying to get barry weiss to do a pilot he thought that was a good idea and i thought that was interesting you know barry weiss can still have her Substack, but at the same time cnn can be- benefit from the the cachet of having someone like barry weiss under their umbrella there can be, it could be mutually beneficial. It can build an outside brand and, and the, the financial streams on the independent side. And for a large media outlet, it can get that cultural cachet also from sort of the outside or that more heterodox point of view. I, I think that that's a, one area where this could work. You know, what does it look like for a Glenn Greenwall not just to have a rumble show and to have a Substack, but to also in some way be integrated into a more traditional larger media outlet that in some ways also can help. I mean, this is something I talk about in the book where, you know, it's one thing for an independent person to go after someone like a Harvey Weinstein or a Jeffrey Epstein. But you don't have the legal resources or the financial backing of of large media outlets. It makes that job harder. So we need some sort of official or unofficial partnership, I believe, in order to to solve this problem, not just for the audience, but for the businesses themselves. You obviously had the opportunity to interview some of the people who are at the center of all of these, these discussions and, and ask them a ton of questions. One of the things I'm curious about is, did you ask them and, and you know, what did you learn about their own media consumption habits? Meaning, are they essentially reading all the same things or were you impressed or surprised by people who maybe went out of the normal loop, went out of the normal silo in terms of the way that they consumed media. 
Yeah, I, I think one of the the most notable aspects of it, and it's it's something that you sort of like chuckle about, but it, the fact that it happened in so many interviews, and, and really not just the people that I talked to on the record, but people that I just talked to on a on an everyday basis off the record that are in the media industry, is the real very rare case is when you talk to someone who consumes content outside of Twitter. Uh, and in, in comparison, how many people spend so much time on Twitter and regret it? Oh, I, 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 I'm, I'm as guilty as this as, as anyone. But so many, uh, I, the, the chapter that I have on, on Twitter is chapter 11. And the reason it's, it's just so full of quotes, all 15, 20 people on the record about it is because everyone seemed to have something to say about it. And part of that was the idea that they themselves were finding it very difficult to consume their own content, uh, just their own daily consumption habits, yeah. have that happen outside of the Twitter you know, sphere that they've, they've crafted for themselves. They acknowledge, oh, it's just this bubble and it's just everyone talking to themselves and I can't get myself off of it. And I, again, I'm, I, I feel that same way also. And so I think that, that it's become not important in the sense of that it's this great business or that there's more and more people joining about it. It's just the opposite. But there is a real, uh, it, it, it has a positive and a negative factor on the way our press operates these days because everyone, it seems, in the industry spends so much of their time on that platform talking to each other and reading and consuming content from there as well. That, uh, so, I mean, I'll, I'll confess my own opinion on this, which is that I obviously I work from a desk uh, at my home uh, most of the day um, and I have my laptop open and I don't have Twitter uh, logged in or anything on my laptop. Um, so from my perspective, like my Twitter time is when I'm out and about or I'm I'm doing other things. You know, like in other words, it's it's meant to be ephemeral. It's meant to be snacking. Right. Because if I had Twitter on my laptop, I'm sure that it would distract me from writing anything. You know, I yeah. would I would dive into things and I would be, you know, engaging with it in that way. And I just think it's not good to have any kind of sort of uh, feed like that that is interrupting your thoughts constantly. Um, you know, it's good to plug your phone in and put it out of reach of where you are so that you can actually interact and, and think about uh, deeper things. Uh, that's my own opinion. personally. I, I think you're but... right. I, I think you're right. I mean, and, and even like even separate from from how much time is spent on there, it's the feeling that you get from it. I mean, if, if you have a tweet that like goes viral, you know, maybe a couple hundred people or a couple thousand people are retweeting it or giving you positive affirmation, it can feel like a drug. And I, and I think I, I talked to Sharon Waxman in the book who owns The Wrap mm -hmm. about how some of her own reporters she's seen uh, it can the, the response from Twitter, even in the negative sense, you know, all of a sudden you get 50 people yelling at you that can feel like the walls are closing in and it can affect the way you cover things in the future or if you cover them at all. So it has also an actual effect on the way journalists do their jobs, whether it's positive or negative, the feedback that they get on a platform like Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, let me talk about uh, another aspect of this that obviously you get into in the book, which is geography. And there's a very common thing that I've heard over the years, which is that the uh, the press is essentially biased based on a number of different factors that don't actually have to do with ideology. They have to do with the background of their experience based on you know their geographic uh, point of origin. And because few of them come from uh, the American 
you know, working class communities or uh, communities in the South or in the Midwest, uh, that they're likely to have more coastal visions of the way that uh, America ought to work, et cetera, et cetera. How big of a factor is geography really when assessing the media bias related issues and frankly, the, the kind of blinkering of their inability to understand the importance of certain issues uh, when it comes to our press? I think it's huge. I, I, I think it's a, it's a major, major element here. Um, and it, it shows up in large ways, but also in small ways. I, I write about one moment. I, I think COVID was a huge example of this uh, in the way that not only our journalists don't really spend a lot of time outside of New York and D.C. to begin with. Now they're isolated, locked down in their in their apartments rather than and certainly not going out into the world. And you get this idea, this warped idea of the blue state versus red state and how you deal with COVID. There was a graphic that Meet the Press put up when it was describing what was being done in states like Texas, where I live, uh, when it came to masks in schools. And the graphic said masks banned in these states in schools. And it had something like Texas. And the truth is that masks were never banned in anywhere in Texas. Mask mandates were banned. And to be honest, school districts like Dallas that I'm in actually went against the, this ban and there was never any fight. And so they still have their mask mandate ban. So the idea, though, I believe that whoever made that graphic and whoever saw it and the editors, no one thought to think no one. Everyone actually thought that kids would go to school potentially wearing a mask and be told, nope, masks are banned here. That's not the case. There are kids in my kid's school still wearing masks because that's mm-hmm. the parent's choice. The mandates were banned. And that's just a, it's just a small example of when you don't have any experience with this, when you have this perception about a certain area of the country, your journalist mistakes are going to become even more amplified because you just don't fundamentally understand the people in those places. And to be honest, it really started in, in, the, in the path to getting extremely worse when November of 2016 came around. And the idea in newsrooms was that there was absolutely no chance that Donald Trump could win. And the fact that he won, you would think that may, maybe would lead them to some introspection there. Well, how, how do we get this so wrong? And there was a little bit of a brief moment of that. I, Selena Zito, I talked to for the book, you know, she was hired by CNN in theory because of that. She describes how she was interviewed in front of the entire organization about what they may have missed. That was when she first got started. Within weeks, she was off the air. And then she just sat sidelined for the entire length of her contract at CNN because they didn't want that perspective anymore. No, suddenly they mm-hmm. turned against not just Donald Trump, but the people that voted for him also. And so the mm-hmm. geographic bias was there to begin with. For a very long time, New York and D.C. has been the hub of the media. But it's only gotten worse from Trump and then from COVID and and. The fact that there is no introspection and no humility in so many of the journalists that we see today is only going to make this a problem that much worse. You know, I did an interview um, uh, right before COVID uh, a couple of years ago uh, with Ross Douthat, where I asked him how it felt to be the last conservative hired by The New York Times. And he laughed and he said that that wasn't true and that wouldn't be the case. And, you know, and he cited... Brett Stevens' existence and Barry Weiss's existence. <laughs> you can go back and you can listen to that interview. I think it really stands up in terms of my prediction that he that he really would be the last person that they sort of brought in who represented a full spectrum conservative approach to things. The New York Times was also one of those entities that after the 2016 election, you know, you had uh, several people, including executives, saying. Hey, we missed this. You know, we, we need to maybe consider bringing in new voices. And 
you know, briefly they had uh, various opinion voices and the like, you know, come in. The whole Tom Cotton op-ed situation, something right. that you obviously get into, you know, is uh, is uh, of a, of a piece of this. When did the New York Times basically just decide that they're going to be an argument between liberals and leftists? <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the the New York Times conservative of today, I would say, is is not what you what you would describe as your as your. The New York Times for. conservative of today is Kristen Cinema. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so. right. Yes. Yeah. The, the, the dangerous radical Kristen Cinema. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It, it it seems like they were just another example of the way that there was this introspection potentially right after the 2016 election, and then that quickly turned into a disdain for the kinds of people that would would cause this this terrible threat to democracy and to the existence of journalism, this existential threat that they were fighting against. And, you know, legitimately, I think lots of people in these newsrooms actually believed they suddenly that introspection was gone. And, you know, I write about in the books what I describe as the temperature test, which mm-hmm. is uses let's let's say you're watching a, 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 a weather report for an area that you're not familiar with. And you're watching it and you're just outside and you know generally what the what temperature feels like. But you don't know. You're, it's a new place. And the, if the weatherman says something, a number that's five degrees one way or the other, you're, you might say, oh, OK, well, maybe that person's right. I know I, I, I'm new here. But if that weather guy says something that's 20, 30, 50 degrees different than what you actually feel, suddenly what you feel the temperature is, you're even stronger about. And that guy is not just not just wrong. Maybe he's lying to you. And then he's not just lying to you about this. What else is he lying to you about? And so I actually think that that's where we're at. It's it's such a warped coverage, not just of, of opinion, but of of what they they say is the truth and the news and, and the only amount of information that you're allowed to consume that the general public has turned against the media in such a large way because of that and and has caused real problems for the press. And it's caused it where now, suddenly, when the media does get things right or when the media is saying something that's true, there's this instinct, this knee jerk instinct to say, no, you know, that's that's that can't be true because you've lied to me in the past. And how it's even harder for the media to get back on the just the good graces of, again, not even a partisans, not even a hardcore Republicans, but just the average apolitical independent who's just trying to get the news. They just have this this loss of trust now. The New York Times to CNN, it's really just reverberated across the entire industry. I'm sure that you've probably been uh, reading uh, the reporting from Gabe Kaminsky at uh, the Washington Examiner about this uh, blacklist that was created uh, on the beh- at the behest of uh, a, an entity, a British entity, in fact, that was funded in part by the State Department, uh, which has become uh, a real item of uh, reporting on the part of uh, – uh, Microsoft, they've said that they are uh, disconnecting or not using that type of, of frame right. within the ad uh, uh, referral service that they own. And there are also calls for congressional oversight uh, hearings from a number of key members of Congress. Uh, the State Department has said that they're not going to fund this anymore. There's a bunch of different you know sort of questions about how this ever happened. Talk to me a little bit about that type of taxpayer-funded censorship that we've seen because it really does seem to be uh, pretty concerning, especially when you consider that there were sites, you know, not just I mean, I think people could sort of say, well, if there's a conservative blacklist, maybe it's going to include places like, you know, The Blaze or Newsmax or something like that. But I think they'd be surprised to see it also include 
places like Reason or Real Clear Politics, yeah. which it did. Um, tell me a little bit about what's going on there and how we can make sure that that type of thing doesn't happen in the future, especially at the behest of, of taxpayers. Yeah, Reason Magazine for free minds, free markets. Yes, we must censor that. That's that's uh, that's where we one of uh, the top ten most dangerous places, according to the Global Disinformation Index. So it's it's really <laughs> alarming. And, and I'm honestly like, we we should really be alarmed about this, but we also should be at least a little bit thankful that these kinds of things become public and we see this overreach with Reason Magazine, for example. And then and then because that's just so absurd and so over the line. It gets pushed back and the State Department says they're not funding it anymore. I, I think about this with that that disinformation board that was started uh, with the with the Broadway singing lead. Uh, yes, I, I'm, we should be thankful that she was the one who was put in charge of it and not just an average bureaucrat in the Democratic Party, because it was so ridiculous and so over the top that they had to disband that thing. They didn't want to disband that thing because the concept of having a disinformation board is they, they've, they've rethought it. And now, actually, that's, that's probably not the area that the government should be involved in. No, they disbanded it because it got some bad press because they picked a ridiculous person to head it. So we've gotten lucky that these things have not snowballed in the way that they have so far. But this is where it's going. And the fact that the, the, the corporate media, the fact that the media themselves, from from the way that the Hunter Biden laptop story was handled, and not just the fact that it was suppressed, but the fact that there was not universal outrage of the way that the, the Twitter treated the New York Post, making that link not no longer accessible. Instead, what happened is Maggie Haberman sends a link to the New York Post and is dubbed MAGA Haberman by her own colleagues. Mm -hmm. That should be that should show us where we are as the press. And the press is not as outraged as they should be. The the general public, uh, the general, you know, person in the press is not as outraged as they should be about these these overreaches that are happening on the government side, because they, too, in many cases, share the same belief that, quote unquote, misinformation and disinformation is this this dangerous thing that must be quelled. I wrote in The Hill in 2021 when this whole misinformation thing was even bubbling up more that in defense of misinformation um, and look, I'm not a fan of actual misinformation. I don't want misinformation out there. I'd rather it be true. But I've described it as that misinformation is the tax we pay for freedom. You know, we, mm. don't, we don't want more misinformation out there, but I would rather more freedom than, than government overreach, than censorship. And so along with the rest of the free-flowing ideas, we are lucky that we get to live in a time where we can weed out the, the few things that are untrue. And I, I, tell, I, will, I trust that the market will weed them out. That is not what we get right now from our government. That's not what we get from the people that are in charge on the tech side. Obviously, Elon Musk is changing that. And it's certainly not what we're getting from the media. And that sort of collusion that's happening, that, that's, that soft collusion is really concerning. A, a final question for you, and maybe this is something that's a little too ideologically specific for you to have an opinion on, but I'm curious as to it. I'm drinking right now from a National Journalism Center mug, um, <laughs> which is an entity that I've spoken to before. Uh, you have the Young Americans for Freedom. You have the, the Fund for American Studies. Uh, you have the Novak Fellowships that are underneath them. You have all these different nonprofit entities on the right that are meant to uh, produce or intended to produce uh, right-of-center journalists. They don't need to be you know, harshly conservative. They don't need to be opinionated. They just want to produce journalists who come through kind of a, or come from a conservative background and give them the opportunity to, to succeed. Uh, I've seen, you know, a number of different programs along these lines at Hillsdale, at Patrick Henry College and the, yeah. and the like. Um, 
And one of the things that's true of them is that they produce a lot of people uh, who turn out to be, you know, very successful within the, the media environment, but perhaps not very conservative. Um, people might be surprised that Jonathan Martin, formerly of the New York Times and now Politico, you know, was a graduate of one of these programs, uh, that uh, Tim Alberta, someone who's been, you know, a vociferous critic of the right, you know, somebody who also was a graduate of one of these programs, got a bunch of grant money to write his book. Robert Costa, obviously, you know, very prominent, you know, journalist, yeah. you know, also came through this program. The joke among my friends is that the right and its donor class has spent millions of dollars uh, giving people uh, the imprimatur of a kind of right of center or centrist uh, journalistic background that they then use to go and attack the right over and over and over again. Dave Weigel is another example of this. Mm. How can the right be better at producing quality journalists who still maintain their kind of connection to the conservative communities, backgrounds, colleges, experiences that they have. And, um, you know, in the, in the interests of, of using uh, a, a Trump framing of this, does the conservative journalism industry need to shut down until it figures out what the hell is going on? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting predicament. And I do think that the idea of how do you stay true to the communities that you, you know, potentially came out of, culture that you came out of, even more so than ide ideology, even then, then becoming a, a uh, you know, conservative journalist, even if you just stay as a journalist, but you don't then turn sort of the opposite direction into a disdain of maybe the people that got you there, that would be much more preferable. And I don't know the let's say, backgrounds of some of the people that you named who have you know, gone on to great careers in the corporate press. But I do think that it starts not just on the, on the ideologically right side, but just in general of trying to find people who have to be almost dragged into journalism. People that don't, if we're getting people that are graduating from the top journalism colleges and want to essentially become stars because that's what journalists can be these days, influencers, then you're, you're picking from the wrong pool of people. You need to find people who are curious, who do, in some cases don't have a journalism degree or a degree at all. People that come from communities that have a curiosity, that don't disdain the people that they are coming from and the communities that they come from. And are going to be immune from what they may be getting on places like Twitter and other outlets that will will it will try to change them and change the way that they will approach stories. Uh, they need to have thick skins, which is, is is a thing that journalists used to have. That was like a, a prerequisite of journalists. Now it's it's they've just the, the skin. It's the opposite. Thin. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's, it's just completely ridiculous. So I think it's it's part of it is pulling from the wrong pool of people. Find people that you think have some journalistic traits but may not even want to be journalists because of what they think journalism is these days. Those are the people that are going to do great work and change the industry for the better. I want to thank you, Steve. Uh, I think this is an excellent book. Obviously, I think it's uh, something that is uh, worthwhile and, and very good at a description of the media in its point of major transition, which is what I think we are seeing happen in front of our eyes. Thank you so much for writing it. And thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Ben. Always great talking to you. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So, of course, it's uh, timely to talk about a, uh, issues related to distrust in the media uh, when uh, we have our own major media scandal. 
playing out in front of us in a very prominent way. And obviously I'm talking about the conversation related to the COVID lab leak hypothesis, one that was advanced by a number of different members of Congress and the Senate, including most prominently, I would say, Tom Cotton, uh, in, over the past couple of years related to uh, COVID and all the issues associated with it. The lab leak hypothesis from the beginning seemed like something that ought to be part of the consideration. You know, this idea that this uh, virus uh, came simply from uh, a local wet market uh, was always something, you know, from the beginning that a lot of people raised concerns about and said, you know, maybe this is true, maybe this is not true. Uh, and to be honest, I, I think that one of the things that was uh, the core weirdness about this, from my perspective, was that if you assumed that this came out of a wet market, uh, then what you were really engaged in is the kind of thing that you would typically expect the very woke left uh, to view as being some kind of, you know, racially framed thing like, uh, you know, the, oh, these icky wet markets that are so uh, unhealthy. That's where things like this come from. And, and, and you would think that the left would be standing up and saying, oh, that's anti-Asian in some way. Uh, instead, the opposite was true. Instead, they basically said that distrusting the Chinese explanation about this uh, was, in fact, the, the anti-Asian element of it. And they used the fact that uh, they viewed anything that Donald Trump said at the time uh, as being in the context of racism, uh, that that was kind of the reason that it couldn't be discussed. Jill Filipovich and others have made this comment uh, in recent weeks, uh, basically saying, well, the only reason that we couldn't report about this lab leak is because it would be framed as being some kind of racist thing. Instead, I would say, you know, no, I don't, I don't think it's racist at all to say that something could have come from uh, a very prominent lab, which is uh, engaged in research on this front, which happens to be in Wuhan, which happens to be near the other place where this potentially could have come from in terms of initial cases. That's, of course, a line of inquiry that is uh, deservedly uh, ought to be pursued. And it's very critical, particularly in the early days of this type of, of virus, of this type of outbreak, to have as much knowledge as you possibly can about where it comes from and the different factors that helped in its creation. Obviously, the fact that, that China was so uh, duplicitous in the way that they uh, behaved when it came to the rest of the world, uh, hiding the truth about what was going on, uh, is something that we really can't uh, assess at this point and may never truly know in terms of the number of lives uh, that could have been saved had we had more knowledge. One of the things, though, that I think is, is uh, fascinating uh, about this whole discussion now that uh, a number of different entities, including the FBI and now most recently the Department of Energy, have openly said that this is something that is not just a, a valid explanation, but perhaps the more likely one, uh, then this whole uh, conversation is opening right back up. And there's all these people in the media who would much rather sweep uh, their commentary at the time under the rug, pretend that it never happened, pretend that they did not engage in the kind of behavior that they engaged in, uh, in trying to silence, shut down, uh, you know, yell and scream at all the people who uh, were openly, uh, you know, considering this theory. And again, you know, I heard very few politicians, if any at all, uh, say anything at the time that was, uh, you know, total assurance uh, about this coming from a lab. Instead, uh, you know, most of them were being very careful and saying uh, things along the lines of this is something that deserves consideration and we need China to be more open with us about the truth. Uh, that's something that obviously uh, turned out to be true. And so you should have a lot of media figures eating crow over it. They're not doing that. Obviously, they're not doing that. 
Um, they're trying to spin this the same way that they've tried to spin so many other things, whether it's Russiagate, whether it's the Hunter Biden laptop, uh, whether it's the way that they covered you know, everything that Adam Schiff had to say over the last several years uh, or anything that was leaked out of the Steele dossier. You know, this is the type of thing where the media just wants to shove all of their commentary at the time under the rug, all of their framing of it under the rug uh, and learn nothing from it and just move on without ever having to deal with the consequences of their behavior. There are a number of people, obviously, who don't like this. Uh, particularly given that the, the at the time, uh, this was really weaponized in a uh, negative way against not just those members of Congress who were described as being racist or irresponsible or conspiracy theorists or uh, things of that nature by so many different people in the media who didn't know any better uh, and were happy to carry along the water for scientists uh, who came forward and engaged in all manner of speculation. Uh, that, uh, you know, uh, framed uh, Republicans in particular and also, uh, you know, a lot of other people, voters across the country as being, you know, uh, conspiracy obsessed or dealing in misinformation or disinformation and the like. But this was also weaponized in other ways as well. You know, we had this conversation uh, about the reporting from Gabe Kaminsky at the Washington Examiner, incredible reporting that uh, he deserves to be lauded for, digging into uh, a number of different entities that went after conservative uh, publications over the course of the past couple of years, uh, deriding them as being uh, forms of disinformation and misinformation, attempting to uh, deplatform them uh, and blacklist them uh, to prevent major advertisers uh, from advertising on their websites. Uh, he actually has a, re a report out this very day uh, that, uh, that looks into the, the fact that uh, there was direct targeting of many of these sites over this exact issue over the conversation around the possibility of a lab leak. Uh, it's, it's really astounding to see a situation where uh, you know, anybody would be targeted for the kind of, of reporting, the kind of, uh, you know, opinion that these uh, different publications were engaged in. But it turns out that not only were they targeted, but they were targeted for reasons that, uh, you know, uh, are, frankly, are, are clearly uh, designed to shut down any kind of conversation uh, around this uh, in a way that served the interest of another foreign entity, namely China. Uh, that's something that is is just uh, astonishing when you consider it. Uh, and uh, and yet there were people who were engaged in exactly this type of activity. Uh, look, I think the the idea that a government backed, a taxpayer funded group, you know, could uh, target uh, any number of different entities over uh, the kind of reporting that was going on around this subject at the time uh, is very concerning uh, and uh, deserves to be looked into further by Congress. But stepping back, you know, I think the overall question that we have to have is, is there going to be any kind of consequence for the media internally to question their coverage, to question uh, the way that they approached these issues, particularly at the biggest entities, at New York, at the New York Times, at CNN, at MSNBC, where Joe Scarborough, Nicole Wallace, and others engaged in just horrible uh, framings of the things that were being commented on by Republicans at the time uh, about their valid concerns regarding the honesty of the Chinese government uh, related to this. Uh, those were always valid concerns. And whether it turned out that the lab leak itself turned uh, was it uh, was a, a false conjecture, if it turned out that it did not come from the lab, if it turned out that this thing just came out of nowhere or out of a, a mutation within a wet market, those questions still would have been valid. They still would have been valid to ask. They deserved consideration. And the fact that people were shut down 
framed as conspiracists or called racists for entertaining these ideas in public or raising them up as things that deserved uh, to have more answers for the American people is simply unconscionable and unacceptable. Unfortunately, as we've seen so many times from the media before, they are going to learn nothing from this. They're going to pretend it never happened, and they're going to be just as obnoxious about the next thing that they put in front of you that turns out to be a lie and that they'd have to get, then again, sweep under the rug. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. everybody, it's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.